Welcome to the Top Order Podcast. This week we've got the three C's in this week in cricket. Crisis in South Africa, we've got the CPL and we've got the Channel 7 debate in Australia. We'll also talk about the Australia-England ODI and T20 series, which is five games out of six in to the ODI leg. In the second half of the pod, we talk Pakistan's bowling Mount Rushmore. So who's at the top? Is it Wazim, Wakar, Imran or does someone else feature on that list all coming up on the top order podcast after the swish so i'm going to come to you lippy first you want to give a shout out to the unbeaten night riders yeah and a shout out to to our man raj here who uh, who tipped them right at the start of the comp i think we we all probably uh, deserve a cheers for for raj well done there well done raj well, we always they had a great uniform didn't they mm. i was always going to get them home Oh, and I mean, un- unbeaten, we probably didn't predict that, but just amazing. And, and I saw uh, Brendan McCullum used the last dance as a bit of a, uh, he wants to create a dynasty there at, at Trinbago. So uh, very inspiring and, and a bunch of Kiwis to give a shout out to. We had Brendan McCullum, obviously the coach, and Colin Monroe and Tim Seifert there. It's just a tremendous effort. We talked about last week, guys like Kyron Pollard, just some of those experienced campaigners, and, and we touched on it in the IPL preview, those experienced people just keep going and going and delivering and delivering when they need to. He's a clever man, Indy McCullum. Wants a dynasty in the Caribbean. It's the worst place is, uh, to winter, isn't that to build your dynasty? Exactly, yeah. Um, I did want to shout out a couple of the other Kiwis that did relatively well in the tournament. So Glenn Phillips finished second in the uh, tournament's top batting run score, scoring charts. Uh, he was actually leading until the, the final game when Lendl Simmons uh, overtook him. Uh, Scott Kugeline was top of the wicket charts uh, with 17 wickets at 15. And Mitchell Santner had a sort of a quiet-ish tournament, but uh, actually on paper did really, really well. 48 average with the bat and 5.6 RPO with the ball. So Colin Monroe, a couple of 50s for him. It's It's been you know a solid tournament for those guys. I think touching on that, though, it's really interesting that none of the New Zealanders who... I guess they're our T20 specialists. Not many of them, you know, maybe apart from from Santner, not many of them actually get picked up in the IPL, which is, you know, you look at those Aussie T20 specialists, some of the England T20 specialists, they can carve out a role and, and get quite big contracts in the in the IPL, but the New Zealanders just haven't been able to do it yet. Why do we think that is? I, I wonder if it's the fact that our Super Smash is, you know, just doesn't get the coverage it, it gets. We don't really get an opportunity to put ourselves on that stage I suppose some of the bigger players like Ross Taylor, Trent Bolt, they they haven't really set the IPL on fire. Uh, you know, Kane Williamson's probably had the the best performances aside from McCullum, who uh, early on was was mm. really doing well in the IPL. But you know, Kane had a really good year for for Sunrisers in 2018 when they won. But aside from that, you know, someone like McLeanigan, I, I guess, actually is is the someone who's who's done really well there and, and these other guys, you know, in fairness, someone like Kugeline, uh, Seifert, Phillips, they're all quite young. They're just building their brand up, I guess, in that in that T twenty format. But, you know, they had pretty good success, particularly Seifert has had some good success against India. So uh yeah, it'd be interesting to see in the in the years to come if he gets a proper gig. Yeah. And I guess it's a good shop window as as well, isn't it? The Caribbean Premier League. So I think 
as more and more of these leagues pop up, that might be the shop window for some of those players that you know have a good domestic tournament that maybe doesn't quite work in with the IPL auction, maybe. Mm. But then they're going to get picked up the following year. You've got the hundred coming up, obviously, as well. If that does get off the ground next summer in England, as well as obviously the you know the IPL and the Big Bash League as well. So plenty of coin to go around and plenty of shop windows to yeah to I guess pedal your wares. Mm. Raj, going to come to you second. You want to talk a little bit of crisis turmoil in South African cricket? Yes, yes. Is little, that the right right description? A little bit of turmoil, yes. We were. <laughs> um, okay, so the South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee have disbanded the Cricket South Africa board and executive. Ask me why. Why have they disbanded the board, Raj? I'm glad you've asked. But uh, <laughs> in, in short... In short, that committee is unhappy with how Cricket South Africa has been operating. So they've gone through four CEOs in recent times, as well as a number of changes to the executive. Uh, there's been clouds of corruption mentioned. Uh, and there's also this, this there's whisperings of a, of a forensic report. The Fundunzi forensic report, yeah. Do you want to talk to us about that, Baldi? Yeah, so that was that was a report that led to uh, Thabag, Thabang Moreau. Uh, he was the CEO back in December who was suspended and, and has subsequently resigned. So that was a report into misconduct that was issued or was, was done then, the results of which are a really closely held secret. So... Not only do SASCOC, I won't pronounce that in any other way other than SASCOC, um, and Cricket South Africa, all of their executive and board members have to sign a non-disclosure agreement to read that report. So it's not made available to either organisation in general um, or for or for you know review. So that's that's one big key sticking point is no one knows what's in this report and it's and it's allegedly got some secrets in it or or some kind of damning evidence around malpractice and misadministration of, of Cricket South Africa. They're also talking about uh, affirmative hiring practices and things like that. And it's also they're rumoured about people who aren't, who haven't already fallen on their sword. So there's people who are already still part of the organisation. Yeah, so so that's all that's all kind of rumour and conjecture at this point. We, we need to be really clear that that's, none of that is substantiated at this point. And so we can only speculate into what is in that report, but the real damning part is that Cricket South Africa won't make that report public so that we can see either the, the, uh, uh, the Olympic Committee, um, sorry, the South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee or Cricket South Africa in general or the public can see what's going on here. Um, the other problem is that that SASCOC organisation is a quasi-government organisation. So it's not directly linked to the government, but it is founded by law in South Africa as a governing body for all sporting organisations. So they're starting to encroach into the territory of government interference or involvement in the administration of cricket. So ICC have released their own statement now. So, that, so they're watching with great interest what's going on with this um, SASCOC, who have themselves got an interim president and an interim CEO. So it's it's all very, very murky at the moment. You've introduced a bunch of letters and, and long words there, but what is this actually going to mean for South Africa cricket? Good question. So, yeah, cu currently, if you ask them, they're operating business as usual. So that's likely to change because the SASCOC is going to put in a task force. Sorry, that's my iPad falling. A couple of beers, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so they're going to put in their own task force to have a look at how the business is operating and what needs to change, if anything needs to change. A task force. The, yeah, the the players are currently pretty much unaffected, so they're still going to the IPL. Uh, but as Baldy said, the ICC can step in and do something like suspend 
South African cricket yep. if there's something's they, going on. They've done that previously with the, the with the administration in Zimbabwe. The other issue that they've got is the Players Association and Cricket South Africa aren't getting along. This the the Players Association, I believe, have um, had two sets of legal um, proceedings against Cricket South Africa and one um, in the last couple of years. So, look, the, the relationship between those two bodies aren't, isn't harmonious either. So there's lots to, um, there's it, lots it to unpack scary. as we go forward. It feels scary that this, this turmoil stuff just won't go away for South African cricket. It feels like it's been lingering for a for while. a long time. We've had, you know, different CEOs and, and stuff, as you've touched on. And I don't know, there's such a powerhouse in, in cricket, you know, I mean, nothing against Zimbabwe, but when Zimbabwe were going through all that turmoil, they were ranked very low on the, the register in terms of our test-playing nations. South Africa is always someone who in recent years we've thought of as a real powerhouse. If they sort of fall to bits, it's going to be a real blow for te- for international cricket. Sure is. Yep. Baldy, over to you for your This Week in Cricket. Yeah, so more contractual kind of uh, handbags at 20 paces between Channel 7 and Cricket Australia this week. So... Uh, for those of you who are living outside of Australia and haven't been following the the Channel 7 versus Cricket Australia thing, $475 million was the deal that Channel 7 signed with Cricket Australia to broadcast um, to broadcast cricket domestically in Australia uh, alongside Fox Sports. So that replaces Channel 10's coverage of the Big Bash and Channel 9's coverage of the Test Summer and, and, and One Day stuff. So and has that been running for one year already, that deal? I think it's been running for a year already. Yeah. So they did the last Test Summer in Australia and they're going to do this one again. But what Channel 7 have said is that effectively Cricket Australia aren't putting the product on the table with the right stars in the right places and they're not going to pay the money that they had agreed or they're looking to renegotiate through an independent assessment, an independent review of the value of the contract. They've made a part payment to Cricket Australia this week and it looks like they've said that that will be the last payment they make this year. So there's already some contractual negotiations going on and exercising of of clauses deep within that contract between CA and Channel 7 around how much they're paying for cricket. And, and really what it's highlighting is the fact that now in a post-COVID kind of world, we're having to reassess the value of some of those broadcast deals with, you know, particularly the long-running ones. And $475 million is a lot of money to pay for cricket. So so essentially they're, they're worried about the domestic or BBL season rather than the internationals because there is a full international schedule in Australia, right? Yeah, there is, but a, a lot of some of that has already been cancelled. So there was supposed to be international cricket in August, which was cancelled. But yes, the primary part of that contract is around the value of the Big Bash. And Channel 7's argument, to boil it down in a nutshell, is there aren't enough international stars playing in the Big Bash for various reasons, one of which is they've co-scheduled international cricket and Big Bash cricket at the same time. So putting the Australian players in a bubble means they can't represent their Big Bash sides, which devalues the product in the opinion of Channel 7, which, you know, you can make an argument that that's Hasn't that always been the case, though, that there's only been a relatively small window when all of the international players have been available for BBL? And that's the real challenge with scheduling this summer, and we talked about it a couple of times over the course of the podcast, is that there's going to be this overlap and how do nations deal with that. And also they're going to have a bigger bubble as well of (laughs) players for practice and and that which will affect the the domestic BBL. 100%. But it was interesting because I read an article and... um, Cricket Australia's sort of retort to this is you look at the NRL, you look at the AFL, their ratings have gone higher in this COVID period because people are at home watching the games. Mm. So who, who's to say that that wouldn't happen for Channel 7 as well? Yeah, and I mean, I would say the only thing I would say is for the general punter, it doesn't feel like a lot's going to change. Like 
I obviously Channel Seven is is wanting to save a bit of cash here. But if you're a punter in Australia and you're thinking, where am I going to watch my cricket? I've got Channel 7 at home. I think you're fine, aren't you? Not much. I don't think much has changed. I don't think any of the cricket will move behind the Fox Sports paywall. That's reasonably well protected by legislation in Australia. Mm. Um, so I don't think much will change there from a practical viewer perspective. It's just interesting to see how companies and, and TVs are valuing cricket now in this in this new world and how they're negotiating their way through what that value means and how we schedule cricket. Well, I'm presumably driven a little bit by the ad revenue that the TV stations are going to get or not get. You know, there's not going to be too many airlines advertising their wares, for example, or, you know, tourism-related stuff. So, you know, yeah, that's may, all gonna maybe that's going to factor in. Yep, 100%. And, and on to some cricket now, Binksy, England-Australia. Yeah, so the England Australia series has kicked off. It kind of kind of went a little bit under the radar almost with the Australian team arriving whilst England was still competing against Pakistan. Um, ODIs and T20s, the order of the day. And I think, you know, I don't know what you think about this, Bordy, but this has got to be like third or fourth year in a row that Australia have hit, you know, the English shores for some form of cricket. So it's kind of... You know, Ashes last year, there was a one-day tour, I think, the year before as well. So I don't know whether they're kind of milking the golden goose, if that's the right. No? Well, World Cup as well. And the World, World Cup, yeah. World Cup as well. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, Aussie's, Aussie's coming over with, as we discussed, I think, on the last pod, n- not maybe that kind of fully thought out formula for their limited overs cricket You've got, you know, Carey, who, talking big bash, opens the batting in the big bash, is now down at six or seven. Marsh in the tail hasn't been super effective. Them gambling, I think, with four genuine bowlers, you know, almost a test match attack with Hazelwood, Stark, um, Cummins um, coming off the off the bat and not those kind of bits and pieces players that sometimes are associated with the game, but all to play for going into the, the final game of this little six-match sort of series that's split between three one-days and three T20s? Yeah, I mean, Australia, I think, in their middle order have been really disappointing in this tour. We've talked about it previously. We won't rehash it all in, in detail, but we haven't found any consistency in that middle order. Neither Maxwell, nor Stoinis, nor Carey, nor... Marsh, you although Marsh is, Marsh is... I think you almost need no, to give Marsh a little no, apology no, here, Baldy, because no, no, you, you've not been harsh his, on him. Not for his haircut. Have you've you been harsh on him many times, but no. he's actually <laughs> come through a couple of times well, here that, in these that, crucial I, moments. I, I was I was about <laughs> to correct myself there because the Marsh family did send me a slice of humble pie on Sunday to eat, um, which I which I had to sort of um, get I, down. I, but I put some custard on it. I did, custard and ice cream. Uh, look, my point with Mitchell Marsh is that he is a fine white ball cricketer and his record is better than, than it suggests, but... Mm. He is occasionally a match winner. How is his sorry? How is his record better than it suggests? His record is better than I give it credit for. Okay, perhaps two different things. Yeah. <laughs> hence um, the humble pie. Yeah, hence the humble pie. Look, he he isn't quite as consistent as we need him to be. And and to be fair, neither is Stoinis, neither is Maxwell. Uh, we haven't really found that consistency. We've been lucky that the top of the order has been working really well with Smith and, and Finch and Warner, but Warner's had a poor series this series again. And, and Smith left out of the last game. Concussion, when, I think. Yeah, yeah, he was hitting the net. Was he? Okay, yeah, so yeah. The, 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 some mixed reports there that he was fit to play that game. Oh, I think they're just being cautious. Right, okay, fair the, enough. What I've heard. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, we still haven't found an answer for that middle order. I, I really liked what Hazelwood was able to do. He mm. was really economical and bowled really well. Zampa 
some for some reason Zampa in fifty over cricket is really really effective. In twenty over cricket, not quite as effective. Uh, but he was he's been excellent in the one day series. Oh, we just need to find some consistency in that middle order batting, um, and and maybe look at our wicket keeping option. And over to England, I feel like England's middle order. We touched on it before in previous episodes, but that list of kind of contenders and. Uh, you know, young players for England in, in limited overs cricket is starting to lift. You know, Billings has just scored this 100. I mean, he, you know, Binksy's frowning over there, but, you know, 100 against Australia is nothing to be nothing to be frowned at there. Yeah, 100 in a losing cause and arguably strike rate didn't allow him to get us over the line. So, you know, we, we weren't super short. Border, you want to go there? I well, I think I think he's got a touch of the Mitchell Marshes about him. His last four scores since he was recalled to that England side was 67 not out, 46 not out, a low score and 100. So he hasn't been all that bad. Mm. Yeah, I kind of look at his longer, you know, longer term record. And I think we've discussed this before. I've not got the stats as readily to hand as, as you over there, Mr. Rainman. But um, <laughs> certainly I think, you know, his highest average in all forms of cricket is not one that you would write home about. I'm just pulling it up right now. So, yeah, averages 42 in list A cricket. So, you know, English domestic cricket doesn't have an average of over 35 in any other format. So that wouldn't be an international class record in, in my view. He's had, uh, you know, a, a massive go at T20s, uh, 30 uh, T20s and only averages 17. Um, doesn't keep. And, and look, I, in all of those games, because we've got such a good stock of keeper batsmen in England at the moment. And I think, you know, the likes of a Tom Banton, who, you know, has got some, uh, yeah, yeah, got some skills with the gloves, will quickly overtake him. Not to mention, obviously, the... Uh, the butlers and the Bearstows and, and the folkses. So, um, look, he got 100, fair play to him. Um, I don't think he's the answer in that kind of middle order. Um, the the thing that I found really, really interesting is the pitches that we've played on. You know, we, now some of that might be due to the fact that these groundsmen in England this, this, this summer have really earned their money. But we've been playing on slow, low wickets, which I think is going to potentially suit our future plans. We, we've obviously got two tournaments coming up on Indian soil mm. uh, where you know typically it is a bit slower and lower and I know Owen Morgan's talked about um, not just getting 350 on an absolute highway as being you know the only way that they can win games so it's been good in that respect but yeah really looking forward to this decider. Are you concerned though about those two I know it's a small sort of sample but those two one day as they haven't looked great with the bat Billings has saved a lot of blushes there for the English in the first ODA. Yeah, look, I, I, I'm not because I think they've got a formula. They've got a blueprint for the way they want to play one-day cricket. Um, how long Owen Morgan is around to continue to marshal the troops is another question, but you've got some other leaders in and around that side. You only need to look at our IPL preview last week, and we're talking about the likes of a Bearstow and a Butler. We've got Roy. We've got a guy called Alex Hales, who's a pretty good one-day player who can't even get into a 55-man um, squad obviously for slightly different reasons but then you've also got the likes of your your Bantons uh, Dan Lawrence's you know a number of people that are coming through um, yeah one swallow doesn't make a summer and you know two bad uh, one day international innings doesn't make a, a bad summer for me either what do we make of um, we've we've talked a lot uh, in the test stuff about the spin bowling and we talked about Bess there's now a chat about Rashid being kind of coaxed back into playing that format I, I did a bit of num like had a look at some of the numbers. Uh, I mean, he's played uh, nineteen tests already. Only averages forty, only averages thirty five and one hundred and seventy five first class games. You've got Bess who has an average of forty in ten tests, 
thirty in his first class games. The one that in uh, Mo Ali thirty seven in sixty tests, thirty eight in one hundred ninety four first class games. So they're all sort of similar. The one that actually stands out is Jack Leach, who you know has kind of faded away. You know whether whether he didn't have COVID and and that's kind of ruined his his summer, but you know, 29 and 10 tests and he averages 25 and 89 first class games. It just feels like Rashid's kind of getting all this buzz for me because he can bowl well in ODIs, but he doesn't have any record to back him up. He doesn't have a first class contract. I, I don't know why there's so much chat and why there's so much kind of desire for him, for England fans and England cricket to almost get him back into the test fold because there's enough decent options out there already for me. Yeah, well, I mean, we go to Sri Lanka and we go to India um, if, you know, we can get on aeroplanes over the course of our winter. So we're going to be playing more than one spinner, you would hazard. And I think when you've got the ability to play two and you've gone through those stats there and Leach, you're right, his numbers are pretty good. But outside of that, you've got two guys that when you look at them on face value and Mo Ali, you're not going to kind of go, oh man, he's your, your star spinner. But when you've got him and another spinner, his record's pretty good. He operates pretty well. Mm. Um, and I I think they like that combination of a mystery, you know, a mystery spinner, um, someone who's a little, you know, offers a little bit more. In Rashi's defence, he's never had a prolonged period in the test side. Mm. Um, he was very much seen as a second spinner to take overseas to those subcontinent conditions. He never got, you know, a run in English conditions. The way that Aussies typically treat their spinners, you know, okay, they went through a bit of a patch after Warney, but... Um, we but, went through a dozen, yeah, I think. But, but then, you know, when you've settled on your, you know, your spinner, he's on the team sheet regardless of what the pitch is because it offers you an ability to hold in the first innings and an opportunity to knock people over in the second innings. England have never done that with Rashid. Mm. Um, so, and look, he's certainly a class one-day performer. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, you know, great wrong, and he, he's bowling really well in those ODIs. It just, yeah, just sort of surprises me that, you know, there's there's such a desire to get him in. Um, but obviously, if he's keen and, and he can produce, then, then all fair play. Well, it's about the management loving him as well. Um, you know, he's, he's not particularly got on well with some of the old coaches, and um, I think that's probably hurt him a little bit. And he's also had quite a serious shoulder injury as well, which I believe he's um, had some work done on, and uh, yeah, after the World Cup, and that's why he might be, uh, yeah, spinning a web and getting it past Kerry's outside edge to win the ODI last night. Well, that wraps up this week in cricket. We're going to be back after the swish. No right of reply for Baldy on that barb on Alex Carey. But we're going to talk Pakistan bowling, Mount Rushmore, when we come back. Welcome back to the podcast. So we are going to talk in a segment called Cricketing Mount Rushmore. Now, we've been doing a few stats of our own as we've gone through the prep for this week's podcast. Looking at where our listeners are, we've picked up some new listeners. We're apparently really big in the Nordics at the moment. So Denmark, Sweden, Norway. Um, we've also got a bit of a following in Korea as well, which, you know, big in Korea, always our dream as we launched this cricketing based podcast. But for those new listeners to the show, Cricket in Mount Rushmore is where we pick a country. We pick either their batters or their bowlers or their cricketers. And we have a debate about who we would chisel into stone as the four best of all time. We get a little bit of grief from time to time, particularly from people like the busted horse who remember the 1960s and 70s and give us some shit about one of the chapels not making it onto the Australian batting Mount Rushmore, for example. 
But in the past, we have covered Aussie batting. We've looked at English, England's greatest bowlers, Sri Lankan batters, and we've also looked um, at New Zealand batters as well. No Brendan McCullum, I can't believe it, still to this day. But we're going to kick off with our Pakistani bowlers. Baldy, as our resident statsman, do you want to make the case for our first potential nominee? Yeah, who do we want to go with first? Well, I think for, for all the listeners thinking about this, they've probably already gone and got three names etched in their head, and, and that's probably Wazim, Wakar, and Imran Khan. Can Does anyone have any dispute with any of those three names? Nope. Yeah, so Imran wasn't on my list, if I'm honest. Wasim and Wakar were. I'd got different people, which I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to. So maybe should we talk about the two Ws? Yeah, let's talk about Wasim and Wakar. Let's start with Wakar, the right-arm fast bowler. Uh, 87 test matches, 373 wickets at an average of 23.56. Five 10-wicket hauls, 22 five-wicket hauls in his test career at a strike rate of 43, which is Im- which is massively it's the impressive. eighth best of all time. Yep, huge. Uh, in one-day cricket, 262 matches, 416 wickets, again at an average of 23.84, 13 five-wicket hauls in ODI cricket at a strike rate of 30.5, which I think is the best of all of the guys that I'm looking at here on this list. It is. It's by far the best strike rate of any of those Pakistan uh, bowlers in ODI cricket. And his strike rate in test cricket, again, just heads and shoulders above everybody else on our list. Oh, look, he's amazing, isn't he? Uh, You know, him and and Wazim, it's hard to talk about them, you know, separately because they, they, in my head, they're just such a duo. and, And every time they would come to New Zealand... It would be this terrible moment where, oh no, we have to face Wazim and Wakar. And I, th- I can remember one test match, I think, where Shane Thompson and Brian Young won- put on a huge partnership and won us a game. But apart from that, pretty much every time they come here, it just felt like they just absolutely destroyed us. Yeah, when I think about Wakar, I, I, I remember those in-swinging toe crushes that, that he used to bowl. Um, they were really good. But the stat for him that, that really stood out when we've kind of talked about it already is the strike rate. Stu mentioned it's the eighth best of all time. Uh, of bowlers who have taken over 350 wickets, he's the second best strike rate behind Dale Stain. Um, it was just another a, a, a chat for another time, but boy, oh boy, when I was looking through those strike rate stats and you come across Stain in there, I feel like he, looking at his record and, and I guess thinking about him, he's, I feel like he's one of the most underrated bowlers of all time of all in terms time. of yep. actually, you know, thinking about the greatest bowlers of all time. He's never mentioned, I don't think, in those conversations. But, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, we'll leave that for another day. But, boy. Well, that, that might be for our all-time bowling or seeming Mount Rushmore, uh, mm. potentially, that Stain um, comes in. Yeah, look, I, I couldn't agree more with what you said. I, I remember seeing Wakar. Look, I think early 90s, 92 tour, I think, um, springs to mind in England, him and... Uh, Wasim really just swinging it around corners. In those days, believe it or not, the ECB or the TCCB as it was then, so the the English Cricket Board, used to actually give choice of cricket ball to the opposing team. And at that point, one of the choices was a ball called a reader, an Alfred reader. Um, and neither of those guys liked bowling with the new ball. They, they actually wanted to, you know, come on almost first change because once the lacquer had come off, they could really get it to talk. And then, you know, it would start to reverse, you know, really, really early. And we used to actually give um, the oppo choice of cricket ball, which um, seems ridiculous. And, and, and certainly Wakar playing for Surrey and Wasim playing for Lancashire in those days. 
you know, had got a lot of time to hone their craft in, in county cricket as well. And I think a lot of people also forget with Waka that he was, at his time, he did lose pace, but he was very quick when he, he came onto this. Rapid. Watching some of those highlights, incredible. Yeah, I remember him, as a, again, as a young man, just destroying Australia's opening batsman. I mean, Michael Slater must like wake up in the middle of the night and go, oh, what's it? Bolt him! <laughs> because it, it, it just seemed like every summer we would, again, we would have to face Wazim and Waka, and Wazim would have it going one way, and Waka would have it going the other way. And all that Slater could do was just run down the pitch and try and mow the third ball of the Test match through cover, which is probably did against most attacks. But they're just incredible exponents of skill in terms of fast bowling. And we've seen it since, but I, I don't think I'd ever seen a pair quite like them in my lifetime up until that point that had the kind of skill at the pace that they had. I think that's a great point that you make because you think of all of the really rapid bowlers there aren't that many of them that actually swing the ball like Wakar did. Mm. You know, you look at those highlights and he he would literally clean people up because and knock them over because he would run in and the amount of times he actually he hit them on the toe, you know, it, it, because their legs are there and they just couldn't get them out of the way. Mm. It, he, he was just, yeah, the way he that ball tailed in and with that long run-up that he had, just terrifying. Uh, he would have been an absolutely terrifying bowler for me to face. Yeah, and that was the other contrast, wasn't it? You'd got Wakar with that almost massive, quick run-up really coming at you, and then Wasima almost just seemed to glide in almost effortlessly, and then, you know, shoulder giving him such, you know, such pace. He used to hide behind the umpire on the way in as well, uh, particularly when he was bowling around the wicket, you, you know, and all of a sudden you've just got this bustle of, you know, left armers coming out at 90 mile an hour. So they were the perfect foils uh, for each other, I think. It's probably a nice tag. Baldy, do you want to give us all of Wazim's Yeah, so stats? let's have a look at Wazim. 104 test matches for Wazim Akram, which at the time for a fast bowler, incredible effort to get to 100 test matches. 414 wickets and an average of 23.62. 25 five-wicket hauls, five ten-wicket hauls in his career and a strike rate in test match cricket of 54. In one-day cricket, though, holy smokes, 356 one-day internationals, 502 wickets at an average of 23 and a strike rate of 36.2 and six five-wicket hauls in one-day international cricket. I, I actually had to double-check that stat because I thought I had got my stats wrong with that 502 wickets. I thought yeah. that kind of, that must be like tests and T20s or something. It, just unbelievable. Mm. And, and I mean, yeah, as we've just touched on, that craft and that skill that he had, the, the way that he could just run in and hit the stumps, it, it seemed like... So I looked at uh, his, he's had two test match hat-tricks and two uh, ODI hat-tricks. Holy smokes. Which, you know, in itself is staggering. The ODI hat-trick, all six balls of those bowled. It, it's, it, you know, he he's someone, you touched on that that kind of short run-up. He put his, you know, the way he, he cocked his wrist up there, it felt like he was just putting it wherever he wanted all the time. It, yeah, it's, it's just amazing to watch. The best quote I uh, read about him today was someone said he he's not a he's not a good fast bowler. He's a bloody magician. Mm. So I thought that was a great way to sum it up. He had the whole bag, didn't he? He had genuine swing with the new ball, reverse swing with an aging ball, and as you said, just able to put it on a string if the pitch just had to put it there and let the pitch do the work. He had the whole thing, and then he had the aggressive bouncer as well. So he had everything for all conditions. And I mean, Binksy's Binksy's just grinning over there because he wants us to to throw to the fact that he actually kept to this great man. 
Yeah, I, I, I didn't think you were going to mention it, boys. Um, <laughs> look, um, look, I was absolutely privileged. I played a, a club season in Australia when I was 19 years old. And I got, um, so this is going back to 1999. I got a handwritten letter from my dad. He wasn't one to um, sort of get onto the email train pretty early. And his letter said, we've just signed Wazi Makram as our overseas player uh, for next year. But whilst I was away playing a season of grade cricket. So came back to the UK. It was the World Cup year, 1999, when it was held in the UK. Um, so Wasim had signed for us after the World Cup. So um, got to the final against Australia um, in, in a game that was pretty one-sided in the end. Australia smashed Pakistan at, at Lords in that final. But he joined us for this, the second half of the season. And if you'll just indulge me for a moment, I think the one thing was that everybody wanted to know what it was like to keep wicket to him. And I had to say it was it was actually pretty straightforward for the simple reason that you're a bloody long way back and the ball was always in the right sort of channel. And um, Lippy, you touched upon it a little bit with that wrist position. You could kind of see him just standing the seam up or canting the seam. And then you just had a, almost an age and it just came to you at you know, waist height. Yes, it did wobble a little bit, but oh, oh, just absolutely amazing. Um, and look, there's, there's probably three things that you know I, I won't forget from that season, having seen him uh, seen him bowl. One was my first catch off him. He, he bounced someone. Um, they got their you know their their hand up to kind of fend it off their grill. Um, ended up with a broken hand, and I ended up with a very very <laughs> easy first catch off. Wasim Akram just sort of popped up. Um, and then my dad always used to kind of walk around the boundary and kind of watch the game as it was going on. Um, and I remember uh, a game at home that the club I played for was Smethwick and I took a one-handed diving catch. Um, and as I kind of turned around to sort of celebrate and throw the ball up, I saw my, my old man uh, and he's down at the sort of third man boundary and he just sort of gave me a little thumbs up and I was just absolutely uh, made up. And then one of you guys asked me a question, did I ever stand up to him? Um, thinking I was going to say, no, I didn't. But I did. We played on an absolute dust bowl in this one game. So he, he'd actually came on and bowled a, a few overs of left arm spin. And some absolute idiot, I can't remember who it was, decided they'd run down the wicket and pop him over his head for six whilst he was bowling these little left arm spinners. Next We've ball, heard from James Payment that that's not a good idea. That's not a good idea. And it's not a good idea if you're a wicketkeeper either. Because the, the very next ball, you know, he had an economical run up as it was. He came in and fired... Um, what was meant to be a sort of arm ball in swing in Yorker, but it was essentially like him bowling his normal <laughs> round the wicket um, in swinger, um, which the batter missed. Somehow I managed to get my left glove on the ball going down the leg side to stop it going for four buys. But still on a cold day, my hand hurts after that um, particular delivery. But look, um, I'm glad you've indulged me for a bit because, you know, it's not it's not often you get um, to talk about having played with someone that that great. And he he truly was. Um, the other thing I would say is with the Pakistan team, um, we were lucky enough to see them pr prior to their World Cup. They played a sort of a warm-up game at our club. The way he worked with the younger seamers, Shoaib Akhtar was um, in that side at, at that point as well. And the way he worked with our seamers as well. So we had um, a guy called Kabir Ali, um, who would have been probably 18 or 19, had just got onto the staff at Worcestershire, went on to play, I think, one test match for England and a, a reasonable first-class um, career, of course, cousin of Moen Ali, who's in the, the side at the moment. And Wasim worked with him and another guy called Kaysa Shah, a left arm seamer who was um, at that point on the books of Derbyshire and, and taught them a lot of stuff around their wrist position, how they could get reverse swing going and just, you know, gave a lot of time to those younger guys as well. And just, yeah, fascinating to listen to him talk in a dressing room as well.
Can, can I just say I've been really impressed with his commentary over the course of the of the England and Pakistan series. I, I thought he was quite insightful and he did talk a lot about his own experience and what he would do with the ball and the, and the control that he had, but I don't think it was out of out of big noting himself. I think he was genuinely talking about how this is how you achieve that level of control and skill and I think it was quite evident that he's on another level to everybody else and it comes to that level of control that you had and the way he talks about it so casually on commentary is just a, a, a a fa- just, just a fact of life for him that he's able to do that. I, I was going to say that because you could tell that the other people in the com box kind of revered him so much. They were asking him questions about how do you do this? Yeah. yeah. You listen to any of the guys in that era, he is one of the first ones they, they talk about as being the most dip- difficult to face. You know, Michael Atherton, who played a lot of t- uh, cricket with him at Lancashire, he just reveres him. Um, the same, you know, the same with your likes of your NASA Hussain and, and the Aussies as well, really you know, always single him out as someone that was a, a really tough competitor, so very well respected in the game. So, Baldy, I think you have to run us through Imran Khan's stats. Uh, obviously one of the, the great all-rounders of that time, but personally I think he's, you know, locked in locked in with his third position, but Binksy doesn't think so. So why don't you give us the stats? Yeah, so happy to talk Imran Khan. 88 test matches for Pakistan, 362 wickets at an average of 22.81, which for an all-rounder, admittedly a, a primarily a bowling all-rounder, is still a tremendous record. Strike rate of 53, 175 ODI matches, and 182 wickets at an average of 26.6, and a strike rate of 40.9. So he didn't strike as often in um, in ODI cricket, but he seemed to always get the key wicket. He seemed to be one of those guys that would target the opposition's best batsman, and more often than not, he would come out on top in that situation. But, I mean, you just have to have a look at his test record. An average of 22.8 is among the best that's ever played the game. I think with, I think with Imran Khan, he was one of those guys who really mastered that art of reverse swing. And as you, as you talked about uh, Wazim uh, Binksy, I read something today about how Imran Khan spent so much time with Wazi Makram and Waka Yunus passing that sort of knowledge on. And we know he's a good bowler. That's why we're talking about him here. But not only that, he was a good leader. He was a good batsman. Mm. I mean, there's a stat here that he is one of three men to score 100 and take 10 wickets in a game. Holy crap. I I mean, normally my my theory here is that all that other stuff doesn't matter. We're talking about his bowling here, and and that's what's important. Uh, I will note that it, it's very rare that we're talking about someone who could actually be on the political Mount Rushmore for their country as well. As, as well, well yeah. I was going to say his leadership quality is pretty <laughs> much uh, undoubted here. Really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know how he's how he's performing as a, a politician, but obviously very highly regarded and very highly regarded, and and that aura that you mentioned, I think, is is a huge thing. Additional to those stats that you mentioned, Baldy, he's took he took. 1,287 first-class wickets at 22 as well. So, you know, we, we used some of those kind of stats in uh, particularly in our English bowling Mount Rushmore to kind of judge some of those players who maybe didn't play the, the amount of cricket, even mm-hmm. though Imran did play a lot of international cricket. You can see at, at every level he's performed unbelievably well. And, uh, yeah, I just, I can't, I, I think, Binksy, you're going to have to make the case here for why, why he's not on the list. Uh, look, I was just pulling your leg. I think he's there. I just wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about more spinners, Lippy, because you know if we'd have gone in with our three uh, seamers as a lock, it would have been difficult for you to talk about the plethora of Pakistani spinners that we could uh, consider. So, look, I do think Imran Imran is there. And um, from a spinning perspective, who do you like? 
we've got to throw to you and Baldy on this. Me, me and Raj can't really uh, lead the charge on uh, on the twirlers. Well, look, uh, I'm very biased here, but I, I said to the to Baldy when I walked in the door today, I've got four locks here, and Saklain Mushtak is is absolutely locked in for me. He's uh, I'll. I'll I'll credit this by saying he was absolutely my favourite bowler to watch when I was growing up, and you know that that is playing some part here. But there are a number of other reasons, and probably the biggest of them is the fact that I think he changed off-spin bowling forever. Uh, you know, the, he was the first bowler really to master the Dusra, and he did it with such control, and, and he could genuinely spin the ball both ways almost the same amount, it wasn't like he ran in and bowl an arm ball or anything like that. He could, you know, pitch it on leg, hit the top of off, and and just completely deceive batters. And that has that then has led to so many other bowlers, the Murleys, the Ashwin, and you know Nareen, all these other bowlers that have then come on Ajmal and and kind of taken that and taken it to another level. And and yeah. It's we we touched on it in the South Af- in the Sri Lankan batting Rushmore on Jaya Surya, these game changes and I mean Saklane's record stacks up for itself, but yeah, to me the, the, that game changing aspect just elevates him so much more. The, the thing that stands out for me when I look at this list and when we look at the the Pakistan list, you know, obviously they don't have the same cricketing history as an England or Australia in terms of you know those players back prior to. Uh, to the war and whatnot for obvious reasons. But these guys haven't played a lot of test matches. So Klain's only clocked 49 games between 95 and um, 2004. And I think when I was looking at this, I'm just trying to extrapolate and get these numbers and kind of actually put them into the context of a hundred test match um, career and, you know, or, or something that's, you know, going to enable us to compare them against the Aussies and the Englishmen that we've talked about on these Rushmore conversations. And some of these stats are, you know, are absolutely um, outstanding. I go back a little bit further down the list. I want to give a really, really honourable shout out to Mohamed Asif. 23 games, 106 wickets. Mm, mm. You know, you roll that forward. 21 or 22 or something, isn't it? You roll that forward and that is just absolutely out of this world on the field. There are a couple of other guys who deserve a mention as well. I mean, you talk about... um, So you talked about Mohamed Asif. There's uh, two other guys that I looked at in my research. So Safraz Nawaz, who was widely credited as developing or or being the pioneer for developing reverse swing, um, hasn't got a great average in in test cricket, 32.7, but has got a fantastic um, one-day average, 27.3. And he he was one of those guys, like Sucklane, who changed the way cricket was played with his reverse swing. Um, The other one that I found was Faisal Mahmood, who only played 34 matches, but had 137 wickets at 24, which is a pretty good career, but just they don't have the longevity um, of of some of these other guys. And I think the cream really rises to the top with those with those three that we've talked about. I want to talk about a couple of other spinners that I considered for Mount Rushmore before we lock in Sucklane Mushtaq. So I want to make a case for two, Said Ajmal and, and Yasir Shah. And I'll start with Yasir Shah. So he's played 42 test matches so far, 224 wickets in those 42 tests at an average of 30, admittedly an average of 30, uh, but a strike rate of 57. But he does have over five wickets per test. So for Pakistan, he's their real talisman strike bowler. He can take, he takes a lot of wickets. Um, His ODI record kind of counts against him a bit. He's only played 24 ODIs and averages 47.9 in ODI cricket, but 
as a test spinner for Pakistan in the modern era, he's been exceptional. Yeah, I, I like Yasser Shah as well. I mean, he, in all, honest, in all honesty, from a stats perspective, there's three bowlers and then there's a bit of a golf. Yasser Shah is 38 wickets away from fourth all time on that list. But when we're looking at that golf, you have to look at things that are, you know, not only stats. Stats are like a bikini, they show you a lot, but not everything. Mm. <laughs> uh, the main reason that you know that I would put him forward for Rushmore is that he often holds the key to Pakistan's bowling attack. Yep. We talked about it in the the Test series in England. He needs to perform, otherwise Pakistan struggle to bowl sides out. And when he does bowl well, he creates those opportunities for other players. And even I know this is we're talking bowling, but he's that kind of person who came out on that day five and smashed those runs yeah. and put them in a great spot. And he has that sort of aura about him that others have also had. And look, Bordy will probably have a, an inkling on this more than I do. But I think that, you know, from a stats perspective as well, all of Yassir's career has been in the 2010s and onwards, I think debuted in 2014. Batting averages have been going up. Bats have been getting bigger. Boundaries have been getting smaller. Um, pitches have generally been pretty true. So, you, you know, that, that average has got to be taken, I think, into a little bit of context at this stage in his career. Let's see what happens by the time he's finished because it might be that those benchmarks are changing as, you know, batting averages are going up and bowling averages going up as well. I, I want to give you some context on that average, though, and probably the main reason that I, you know, even trying to think... It's because uh, he's not an off-spinner. No, even though trying to... Th- Put him, you know, actually give him some consideration against Saclane. And the reason I went, no, absolutely not, is his home and away record, or actually in, in Pakistan's case, it's your neutral and your away record. Mm. His neutral record is average is 24, his away record is 36. And I think we've seen that recent times in Australia and in England that he hasn't been able to make that impact overseas. And it's had a real detriment on. You know his ability, I think, to be regarded as one of the the best spinners in the world. When you think about Saclane, his average was completely the same home and away. He was able to perform at an equal level no matter where he bowled. Because of the way he bowled, he was able to deceive people. Spin bowling's about deception, and he was able to do that. Whereas Yasir is on has has only been able to do that in favourable conditions. So bikinis and deception. We're summing up spin bowling. In some very uh, clandestine ways here. What about your Ajmal case, Baldy? Well, I I considered Said Ajmal purely on a statistical perspective because I, I I didn't I tried not to in my initial sort of deliberations. His after match interviews are always brilliant as well. <laughs> I don't remember them, but they must have been. Um, okay, so Said Ajmal, thirty five Test matches, only the thirty five Tests, one hundred and seventy eight wickets at twenty eight point one, with four ten wicket hauls, which is more than Suck Lane. Um, a better strike rate and a better test average. So that's why I sort of had him in that consideration, at least initially. Um, 113 one-day matches, 184 wickets at an average of 22.7, which against Sucklane's average of 21.2 is is, is really good. Um, and also a, a similar strike rate, so uh, a strike rate of 32. Um, I, I purely had him to compare to Sucklane and how well does Sucklane's record stand up against some of those other guys. And Sucklane's record is fantastic. 49 matches, 208 wickets at an average of 29 um, at a strike rate of 67 and 169 one-day matches with 228 w- wickets at a spectacular average of 21, which if you have a look up and down that list, 
that's the best one-day average of all of those guys. Oh, he was just an absolutely staggering one-day bowler. He was the fastest to 100 wickets. He was the fastest to 200, 250. Like, mm. he just, yeah, he was such a good bowler. He's got two ODI hat-tricks. Yeah, I mean, I could I could ramble on about Siclane for a long, long time. He's got the 16th best ODI average of all time. Interestingly enough, uh, Shane Bond features at, at 10th. He also features in that strike rate stuff that we talked about. Mm. Again, I could talk about Bondi for a long time, but... Uh, Hadley is on there, but the number one bowling average of all time in ODI cricket is Rashid Khan. Obviously, still early on in his career, but 18, 18.5 average, it's, uh, it's it's very impressive. I'm I'm interested in some of the other spinners, the the older spinners that you haven't mentioned. So some some people I gave some serious consideration to is Abdul Qadir, uh and also uh, Mushtaq Ahmed, who I loved watching Mushtaq Ahmed bowl back in the day. Um, you know, I didn't have the pleasure of of watching Abdul Qadir. I have watched a, a bit of footage of him uh, now, but yeah, personally, I couldn't put those two above. But both very, very good bowlers, and and Qadir is sort of credited for kind of keeping Leakspin going mm. uh, in that time. Really, when Leakspin didn't get much shrift, no, yeah, so yeah, so they definitely deserve a mention. I don't think, and you can throw Danish Kanera in there as a Pakistan league spinner as well. I don't think any of those three guys stack up against Sucklane um, in terms of their record. Um, all very, very good league spinners for Pakistan. Uh, Mushi now a member of the Pakistan coaching squad, and I think Pakistan will benefit greatly from his input into their spin bowling ranks. But Sucklane, to me, stands above those other guys, um, and he would be my fourth pick for Mount Rushmore. Is there any case for looking across the room at the non-spinners? Did either of you consider Shoab in this conversation? I've got him. I've got some points on him, but I don't really think he's there for me. He's more of an honourable mention, and again, the stats just aren't there for him because his his body didn't 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 hold up for him to play as many tests. But number he, one on ego, hundred percent. I really just want to talk about his Twitter game. So we'll get into that <laughs> in a second. But I mean, look, you think about speed. You think about his aggression. He was that kind of enforcer that when you go to places like Australia where you need to be aggressive and, and to, to play that game with them, he was the one you wanted on your side lacing mm. up their boots. Uh, poles everywhere. Poles everywhere. But it just the, the longevity is for me is what, what didn't have him in this race. I thought that he was a good bowler. Whether or not you think that there's some some controversy around his action i personally don't but uh that that's going around as well which obviously holds it back as well but what about his twitter game what did he say about jimmy anderson's bowling uh 600 wickets is no less an achievement for a medium fast bowler i think <laughs> and i think it, it, people picked up on the medium fast element of yeah, it was just so, of that, of that so tweet. brilliant i feel like he'd be a great commentator to listen to like if they put him in front of a game you'd listen to him it'd be great to listen to mm. Yeah, well, look, 140 characters is about all I'd credit that statement with, to be perfectly honest. Not fit um, to shine Jimmy Anderson's Adidas, I'm afraid. But he does have a tremendous strike rate. 45 in Test cricket is a fantastic strike rate. He was a tremendous competitor, but as you say, Raj, he probably doesn't have that longevity to stack up against the 22-year career of Imran Khan and the, and the you know, 18 or 19 years that Wasim and Wakar were running around. And yeah. that's through and no I, fault of his own. I guess there's also a little bit of an affinity bias because his record against New Zealand, he averaged 5.23 um, against you guys with the ball. So uh, when you compare that... What are you with, trying to say? Well, what I'm trying to say is, I think you mentioned sort of his, you know, showing against Australia and, and, and uh, 
um, charging in. He charged in at an average of 35 and an economy rate of nearly four and over. So didn't do too well when he was really up against uh, up against the best. So yeah, very much an also ran for me. He ran pretty fast though. And so, oh, sorry, the, the, the stat for him that, that surprised me was his average. I think it's quite low. Do you have his average there? 25. 25.6, yeah. So it is, it is quite low. I was surprised that his average was yeah. there. You expect the strike rate to be lower for the fast bowlers, yeah, yeah. but you expect him to get some punishment. Mm. Yeah. So that we almost wrapped up the Pakistan bowling Mount Rushmore. We've locked in the two Ws, Wasim and Wakar. We've locked in Prime Minister Imran Khan. We've convinced you on that, have we? Um, yeah, look, when I actually look at the stats, it becomes a pretty uh, <laughs> a pretty good argument. Look, as I said, I just wanted to liven the debate, play the devil's advocate that I always do and allow us to talk about 17 different spinners just for you, Lippy. <laughs> appreciate when, that. When it comes to those spinners, though, we, we've had a little bit of debate around the table. It sounds like the runners and riders are either Seclain Mushtaq or Yasir Shah. So let's quickly go round the table. We'll start with you, Lippy. Who are you locking in? Oh, as, as I said, it, it, I walked into this debate locking four names in immediately. But I think when I when I even dug deeper, Seclain stood out even more. It was just you know his record. Although he only played forty nine tests, he's got a staggering record. And and you talk about those international uh, the the subcontinent players and the way that they often do struggle away from home and, and in different conditions the fact that he could be such an effective bowler all around the world the fact that in ODI cricket he's averaged 21.7 he's got the 25th best strike rate of all time as a spinner which is you know he's just an amazing bowler and I loved watching him bowl the only i think he's the only in, uh, opposition player I've ever cheered to get 100 uh, you know, he, because I just loved watching him play so much. Uh, yeah, I could I could be here hours talking about him. So it's it's easy for me. Raj, give us a give us the case for Yasir. Yeah, so I've got Yasir in there as the as my fourth on Mount Rushmore. From a statistics point of view, he's about to tick that box, being the fourth fourth highest wicket taker in the country. Uh, he holds the key to their bowling attack being successful, and he has this aura that we've talked about when he was in England. I know we're, we're talking specifically about his bowling, but him just being there makes other people better. Look at the 100 he scored in Australia. There's not many people who will go down there batting number eight and score 100 in Australia. He, he's got that sort of presence about him which makes others better. Stats aren't always everything. Baldy. I think it's going to be really interesting at the end of Yasir Shah's career to see how he stacks up against Saklane. But we're recording this right now. And so for me, I have Sucklane on that list. I want to revisit this again, though, at the end of Yasir Shah's career because I think he's going to have 400, 450 test wickets by the time he retires. He's, I think he's that good, and he's taking them that frequently. But for me, at the moment, it's Sucklane. For the reasons that you mentioned, Stuart, his ability to change the way that offspin was bowled and his ability to bowl that one that comes, I don't even know how he does it, but goes the other way, um, was done with just superb deception, as you said, and, and he's the one for me at the moment. Well, for those of you who've listened to a Rushmore before, you'll know that quite often as a four, we sit on the fence. We don't have anything along the lines of a casting vote. Um, I'm going to go with Seclain. Um, the main reason, and Lippy put it far more eloquently th than me, but he changed the face of off-spin bowling, I think, particularly with that deuce, as we've talked about and as you've just mentioned as well. I also do you know, agree that Yasir has got a lot of cricket to play. So 
you've got to tune in to podcast 467 <laughs> where we'll revisit the Pakistan bowling um, Mount Rushmore. But for now, we're going to commission our sculptor uh, for Wasim, for Wakar, for Imran. They're going to get to work on Sackline, but they're going to maybe put the mould together um, for Yasir with maybe just a little less hair for when he finishes. I think um, they should go career. with Sackline now with that awesome beard yeah. instead of uh, his, his playing days. It's a more expensive commissioning. if you. That's if true, you, if but you... much more impressive to look at. Well... <laughs> Well, on that note, we've talked about Sakhalin. I did meet him. I enjoyed him a lot. Well, we've uh, we've talked about his beard. We've talked about bikinis covering more than just the statistics or the Brazilians. Um, but that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Top Order podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Just a quick reminder to dip back into the back catalogue. We've had some real lockdown treats talking to some greats of the game. Mike Hussey, who's with the Chennai Super Kings, is in your feed. Um, just a few podcasts ago. Our IPL preview is also up in parts one and two. And if you do engage with us on social media, you will find links to our Dream 11 IPL Fantasy League, where you can take on the teams picked by those at the top order table. Just worth pointing out that when we looked at the TAB and Bet365 odds, we were way off in terms of our prediction. So let's see how our 11s go in this first round of games coming up in the IPL very, very shortly. But yeah, please dip into the back catalogue. Thanks for listening this week and we'll see you again very, very soon on the Top Order podcast. <laughs>